we have been in a passage in 2 Peter that deals with false teachers. And we have noted in the past that that term false teachers does not apply to everyone you disagree with. (laughs) Uh, A lot of people will do that, and that is really not a fair thing to do. Uh, We don't agree with everybody in this room. That doesn't mean everybody here is a false teacher. Um, Peter is using the term to apply to a group uh, that chose not to abide by the authority of the revelation of the Old Testament or the apostles. And they were following their own experience and uh, visions. Uh, Historians tell us that during this time when Peter wrote, there was kind of an early manifestation of Gnosticism. Hadn't been fully formed yet, but these were people that believed in kind of, you know, secret experiences, secret knowledge um, that was given to us, and they basically um, denied the authority of Scripture. But they also denied the importance of the physical body, so that meant you could do whatever you wanted to with your body, including any sexual proclivity you had. Uh, that was cool with them. Okay? Uh, the identifying marks then of the false teachers, according to Second Peter, were, uh, and we've talked about this before, they denied the second coming of Christ. They elevated experience over divine revelation with the result that sexual desires could be pursued in full measure. And if you hold to these beliefs, then obviously the gospel is going to look a lot different uh, than the one that's presented in the New Testament. Now, let's remember that the reason that Peter wrote this is because these folks were in the church, okay? These descriptions are so that the church can recognize people who come to the church and want to do damage, okay? In fact, Peter said in the third chapter, You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the air of lawless people and lose your own stability. Now listen, it would be much easier to just start naming groups, okay, or some other particular movement or denomination. But I think... These uh, tactics are far too simplistic because, you know, no one group is just this giant monolith. I mean, even within our own church, there are people who disagree on stuff. So if I said, you know, the word progressives, that doesn't mean that every single person who identifies as a progressive believes in every single thing. But for the most part, you know, they might believe in certain things like denying the moral boundaries that the scripture lays out or denying the... Uh, inerrancy of scripture, things like that. Um, But that doesn't mean that every single person will. But the point is that I think we have to understand the principles first, okay? Not just identify the group, but understand the principles that make one a false teacher. And, you know, these things are in existence today, right? I mean, they are. Peter is warning us that if you get away from this basic Christian orthodoxy, uh, you need to watch out for those people that do that, and then they seek influence within the body of Christ. Now, the fact is, is that in Springfield, there are over 400 churches in the area, okay? So we got as many as Chinese restaurants, okay? And so what that means is that most people, I would say 90-some percent of people, 
who fit in this non-Orthodox category just aren't going to usually stay within a church that is more conservative like we are theologically. They're just going to go to a church that teaches in this more progressive, again, I'm using that term, but I'm using it loosely, progressive manner, okay? Um, So there's plenty of churches that people can find that are like that, okay? Um, But that was not the case in the first century. So they didn't have a plethora of Protestant churches. You know, you had maybe just one, and so they came, and then that became a problem, all right? So we're going to read in context what we talked about in previous weeks, and then we'll read the passage we'll go over today. So let's all stand. And especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority, bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. Whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. But these, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about manners of which they are ignorant, will also be destroyed in their destruction. Suffering wrong as the wage for their wrongdoing, they count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions, while they feast with you. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed, accursed children. Now let's look at what we're going to look at today. Forsaking the right way, they've gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing, but was rebuked for his own transgression. A speechless donkey spoke with human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. Father, I pray that as we speak about these things today, you would give us understanding, great grace, and discernment. We need it from you. I pray that we can continue to be um, dedicated to your word, love well. Um, Lord, it seems like people will uh, go to an extreme to love everybody, tolerate everybody, but not speak the truth, or they'll speak the truth, and they don't do a good job of loving But may we be uh, doing both well, I pray. And uh, we thank you for this passage that, again, reminds us of these critical areas that we need to be aware of. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I listened to a podcast recently of a pastor who self-identified as a progressive. And the person who was interviewing asked him, well, what does it mean to be a progressive Christian. Now, they, they talked about views of the Bible and other things, and after about 15 minutes, the guy said, well, there's really one thing. One thing that I would say above all that I can recognize a progressive pastor or progressive congregation, and it's this. You can locate a progressive church and they're acquiescing to the LGBTQ rationale. Interesting. Now, it's here that you're going to get, I think, different responses. You're going to get a lot of anger from people because of how you feel like it's shoved down our throat. And obviously, there's an agenda. You see it all over media. I get that. I get that. And I think the church can respond with this vitriol, with, you know, pushback and anger and go out of their way to always have some snide comment. And I'm telling you, that's not the way to go, all right? We, we cannot do that as a church and as a people. 
Uh, the fact is, is I could have each of you stand up and I could ask you, what is your biggest sin? Now, that'd be a great service, wouldn't it? Just have everybody tell me what your biggest sin is. And we would all have something, right? We would all have something because we all sin and some sexual sin, right? Now, the difference is, I hope it's a difference, is that in our sinning, we're quick to confess, we're quick to recognize our wrong, and we want again to live under the lordship of Christ. But some people don't want that, and that's where there is a real problem. But with the LGBTQ stuff, I get that you have this kind of, you know, force of nature, it seems like, with the culture that comes upon us with this, but there is a way that we can respond as a church that I think is far kinder and more loving without sacrificing the truth. I'm not asking that we, you know, tolerate the action. I'm not saying we have to agree with the worldview. But I do think we just need to treat people with respect. And we need to treat people as being made in the image of God. Now, if, if we lived in a perfect world, what I would love to see is that we would have people of, let's say, struggling with LGBTQ issues. They would come to a church like ours, and they would see what a genuine, loving community is like, which is what any of us desire and what they desire. But they often don't get that in church. Instead, you know, they get a stiff arm. Now, I'm not saying that a member or a leader who is in that, we're not going to have some issues with, okay? Yeah, we, we would. But people who come and visit, okay, and who struggle with this, um, we can love, we can have over to our home, um, and I hope that they could see, this is what genuine community is like, they could see the gospel lived out, and they would know that they are respected as a human being. Don't you think we can do that? I do. I, I think we can. And so, now, I get just as upset as you do when I see all the political agendas out there and I see the way our culture is going. And I know all of you probably threw out your Bud Light beer from your refrigerator. Okay? I, I get that. Okay? <clears throat> oh, I know Christians don't drink beer. Well, they do in this church, so I'm just letting you know. Okay. Um, the point is that uh, we get upset at seeing these things, and, and I understand, but still, these people are not our enemy, okay? They are just worked up in, I think, this kind of vortex of the culture and don't even understand what they're doing. But we can still communicate love and kindness and confirm the worth that they have as an individual. So we affirm the truth of God's word and we affirm the fact that they're still loved by God. Just like we have to remind ourselves when we sin. You know, you may not struggle with that particular sin, but another sin, what do we do? We quickly claim that I am forgiven and we try to recognize once again that I'm loved by God. And where Christians really get into problems is that they think they've sinned so much that God doesn't love them anymore. Or God, God doesn't, you know, want to use them anymore. And that's a lie from the evil one. So uh, Peter is 
not talking about LGBTQ issues, but what he is talking about are false teachers. And I just wanted to use that as an illustration of how it's kind of manifested maybe within our churches. Um, but this is what he says. Forsaking the right way, they have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing, but was rebuked for his own transgression. A speechless donkey spoke with human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. Forsaking the right way, they have gone astray. Well, what's he saying? Well, I think what he's saying is that they left behind God's directives. The implication is they once experienced this more orthodox way. They once experienced the truth, believed the truth, but now they have walked away from it. All right? Hmm. You know, it's my experience that when somebody walks away from the Lord or the church, that there's a story there. Right? Now, it might be easy to condemn. We shouldn't do that. But when you walk away from Orthodox Christianity, and by Orthodox, what I mean by that is that those truths that were foundational to Christianity through the centuries, such as the deity of Christ, the efficacy of the sacrifice of Christ, the Trinitarian nature of God, biblical authority, those who held to such things and have now turned from them, they all have a story. And all the students that I have talked to in over my 20 years of teaching who, and they'll tell me stories about walking away from the church within class, invariably it started with being hurt by a church or a Christian. In fact, if you were to talk to a person who once believed in God and no longer believes in God, what you'll usually find is some emotional experience like that that's very negative. Not everyone, but the majority. And if you'll just listen, you know, tell me what kind of started you on this track, okay? Just show some care and concern. You're going to hear a story like that. It's like the ugliest moment of the church or another Christian. And they now can't separate that from Orthodox Christianity or God. Now, we may know that God is a lot different than the church. You know, the church does something screwy, the church does something wrong. You're gonna, you, you should say to yourself, well, that's not God. Okay, so that doesn't affect necessarily my relationship with God. But a lot of people can't separate that, right? Now, here's the hard truth that people have difficulty um, listening to. And that is that those who go astray are each responsible for their departure, right? Nobody makes another person leave the faith. Now, we may be influenced by friends, by a church, by family, by even a bad pastor, all right? But each individual chooses to reject God's propositional truth. You know, if you were to listen to the stories of, let's say, people who've had an affair, or a person who got fired from a job for a just cause, or a person charged with um, a valid, you know, unlawful crime that they committed. There are ancillary circumstances that maybe didn't make them do it, but they feel they had no other choice. 
And if Paul hammers away at anything in this passage, it's that each one of us are responsible for our choices. Nobody makes a person have an affair. Nobody makes a person do a crime. Okay? You did the things that caused you to get fired if it was a lawful firing. My point is that each person is responsible for their choices. And actually, I think that there's freedom in this. Because I think what our flesh wants to do is, you know, we want to blame the president, we want to blame the country, blame the political system, blame the culture, blame our parents, blah, blah, blah. It just goes on and on and on. And Peter says, stop it. They are responsible. They will reap the consequences, okay? And we have to say the same thing to ourselves. Nobody made us sin. We do it ourselves. There's freedom in this, that I am not beholden to my circumstances. I have freedom to choose my attitude. I have freedom to choose my perspective. I just got pages and pages of a text today of someone saying, I had this, I had this happen, I had that happen, and that's why my life's going to be this way. And I'm like, now hold on a second. You have freedom to choose how you respond. Now that's, that's because we're human beings. And God has made us moral creatures to where we have a choice in these things. There's responsibility with that, but also there's great freedom. So nobody makes me angry. Nobody makes me want to hit them. I, I do that all by myself, right? Right? I've told people this time and time again, that my biggest problem is not with the president, not with our political system, not with other churches. My biggest problem is me and my flesh that I have to deal with on a regular basis, and so do you, okay? So why don't we take the rest of the sermon and just talk about my flesh, all right? We could talk. So Peter draws a parallel between Balaam and the false teachers. Balaam chose right multiple times until he didn't, all right? He finally gave in to greed. And we have to do a little review of Israel's history to get the story. Israel had experienced victories in their quest for the promised land. They defeated the Canaanites. They defeated the Amorites. And Balak, the king of Moab, was concerned because they were the next in line to be defeated. And we read in Numbers 22, Then the people of Israel set out and camped in the plains of Moab beyond the Jordan of Jericho. And Balak, the son of Zippor, saw all that Israel had done to the Amorites. And Moab was in great dread of the people because they were many. Moab was overcome with fear of the people of Israel. And Moab said to the elders of Midian, This horde will now lick up all that is, ignorant, all that is around us as the ox licks up the grass of the field. So Balak, the son of Zippor, who was king of Moab at that time, sent messengers to Balaam, the son of Beor of Pithor, 
which is near the land, the river of the land of the people of Amal, to call him, saying, Behold, a people has come out to Egypt. They cover the face of the earth, and they are dwelling opposite me. Come now, curse this people for me. Curse this people for me, since they are too mighty for me. Perhaps I shall be able to defeat them and drive them from the land, for I know that he whom you blessed is blessed, and he whom you curse is cursed. So Balak wanted Balaam to curse Israel. And God has told Balaam not to go with the men that Balak had sent so that he could sell Balaam on this idea of cursing Israel. Verse 7 says, these men had, get this, fees for divination. Fees for divination. Money to bribe Balaam to curse Israel. Now, Balaam initially refuses to go. But Balak would up the ante with more important people to put in front of him and then also more money. Now, Balaam initially says the money isn't going to matter. But we read in 2 Peter this, Balaam loved gain from his wrongdoing. Eventually, he gave in. Now, God says to Balaam that if there were men that would come to him, they had come multiple times, and finally, Balaam keeps asking God, you know, uh, about what he should do. It's almost like, you know, trying to beg God to change his mind on something. But God says to Balaam that if these men come again, I'm going to let you go to the king. Now, God never changed his plan. And I think that if Balaam would have listened, <clears throat> Balaam could have still proclaimed God's glory, could realize that God wanted to protect his people. But Balaam, in his heart, apparently had a hidden desire for money, for money. God could have used Balaam, but Balaam hid this motive. And Balaam goes without waiting for the stipulation that God was going to um, or the, the king was going to send some men to ask him to come and join Balak. And instead, he jumps the gun, and he goes anyway without the men coming. Numbers 22.20 says, And God came to Balaam at night and said to him, If the men have come to call you, rise, go with them, but only do what I tell you. All right? But something is in the heart of Balaam to jump the gun. So he flees. He goes to Balak. Peter says it's greed. And greed is often in the heart of the false teachers, but let's face it, it's been in our hearts at times too, right? Greed. I think it's something we're all familiar with. How can you live in this culture and not struggle with greed? It's not foreign to any of us. I mean, it can creep in our hearts and it can be hard to detect. And it's there no matter how much money you make. And Peter says in the last days, People are going to be greedy, more so, lovers of money. He says that in 2 Timothy 3.2. And in Paul's treatise on the same subject in 1 Timothy, he says this. Now, it's kind of a strange brew here of false teaching and money. Check this out. 
If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he's puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of great gain. Uh, but godliness um, with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senses and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and have pierced themselves with many pangs. Notice this strange brute. The teaching is off. They cannot be corrected, right? They don't listen. They cause disunity, and they concentrate on money. Now listen, we can do any one of those things at a particular time, right? This is all together with these guys. Now, when it comes to the money issue, you know, we may not be having to wear a solid gold chain with a giant dollar sign around us, you know, with gold teeth to show that we're all about money. But sometimes within Christianity, it can be a strange thing that people will kind of grade your spirituality by how much money you make, that God is going to bless you, or that your, your closeness to God is measured by your success. Or it could just be an arrogance that if you have money, and you look down on others who don't. Money, pride, false teaching, Paul says that makes for a deadly combination. Now, of course, Balaam was famous for his riding of a donkey and the donkey speaking to him. He beat the donkey. And then the donkey complains about why he's getting beaten. Now, we were asked last week about why would Balaam not be too surprised at this donkey talking? Well, you've got to remember that Balaam was used to dealing with the invisible world, all right? And many commentators think that when you do that, you'll see all kinds of manifestations so that a talking animal may not be that big of a deal. But Balaam was on this trip with a motive for money, and an angel was diverting the donkey, not going where Balaam wanted it to go. Balaam beat the donkey in response until the donkey talked back to Balaam, and then Balaam was given the ability to see the angel. Now, God was not so concerned about Balaam's geography, where he was going on the trip, but he was concerned about the state of Balaam's it's a reminder to us, to us that often disturbances we get when we go over speed bumps, it may be in a relationship, it may be we didn't get the money we wanted, it may even be a, a car that went out on us. It could be a myriad of things. You know, we get angry that things aren't working the way they ought to be. But could it be 
that God is putting that speed bump in our way for us to pause, for us to consider for a second. God, what is it you're trying to say? What's the state of my heart right now? What attitude do I need to change? This disturbance was a way for Balaam to take inventory of his motives and to see that there was a trap set before him. And we read the words of the angel to Balaam in Numbers twenty-two thirty-two: I have come out to oppose you because your way is perverse before me. Not because he was on a donkey. And not even because he was traveling to go talk to Balak. Because God said, if the men come, I want you to talk to them. But he jumped the gun because he had something else in his heart going on. And it wasn't to give God the glory. All right? Balaam's motive was not what it should have been. He could have used the occurrence to stop and consider his motives. In fact, we know that he feigned repentance when the angel called him out. He gets down on his knees He confesses, you know, shouldn't jump the gun, blah, blah, blah. But still had this greed in his heart. And the angel specifically told him not to speak anything other than what God told him to speak. And we learn that he did otherwise. His intention was not for the glory of God. Because even though he did not pronounce a curse on Israel, as Balak wanted, he was involved in Israel's demise. We read in Numbers, while Israel lived in Shittim, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. These invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So Israel yoked himself to Baal of Peor, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. We then read in Numbers 31, listen to this, Moses and Eleazar, the priests, and all the chiefs of the congregation went to meet them outside the camp. And Moses was angry with the officers of the army, the commanders of thousands, and the commanders of hundreds who had come from service in the war. Moses said, have you let all the women live? Behold, these on Balaam's advice, on Balaam's advice, caused the people of Israel to act treacherously against the Lord in the incident of Peor, and so the plague came among the congregation of the Lord. Balaam advised Balak to tempt Israel with the daughters of foreign nations. This sexual entrapment promoted the worship of the idols of these women. So you had the sex along with idol worship that came with it because they loved the sexual immorality. And with it came the idol worship. Now, if Balaam had a motive of honoring God, he would not have advised this. But the money promoted it. He gave in to the greed. In the end, a talking donkey was smarter than an evil human. The donkey knew something was wrong. (laughs) And Balaam made it feigned repentance, but he succumbed to the bribe and he was eventually killed by the sword. From the outlet, God told Balaam not to help Balak. And at first, Balaam obeyed. 
sent the messengers home. But when Balak sent more princes, promised more money and honor, Balaam decided to, you know, pray about it again um, and reconsider the matter. He got worn down, right? And we can wear down our defenses. Could be sex, could be money, could be whatever, all right? My dear friends, if there was a defense against this, it's that we cannot hide some ulterior motive. We have to be honest with ourselves and before God with this stuff, right? We have to be humble in admitting our weaknesses. Get help if we need to, but we have to be honest with ourselves. Ben Stein, the famed actor from Ferris Bueller's Day Off, has written about how vapid Hollywood was, and he admits he wasn't a great actor, and he didn't see a real future in it, but he also could see the temptation that actors and actresses had with Hollywood, and he said in order for him to keep his sanity, you know what he said he had to do? He had to come to realize that God is real and not a fiction, and he had to turn his life over to him. Now, I don't know about the man's spiritual life, but I, I, I like those words, all right? Stein said that instead he wanted to focus on being a good father to his son, husband to his wife, a good son to his parents because they had done so much for him. And then he says this, quote, this came to be my main task in life. I came to realize that life lived to help others is the only one that matters and that is my duty in return for the lavish life God has devoted upon me to help others he has placed in my path. Again, it's not easy for any of us to continue and not get sucked into, like I said, this vortex of the culture of just making money and chasing the American dream. Now, nothing wrong with success in and of itself. But we have to daily address the motives within our hearts. We have to align our perspective with the kingdom. You know, sometimes it's just good to take inventory. Sometimes it's just good to sit down with your spouse and with your kids and say, okay, with the way that our family is functioning, with the way that we are operating, what does it appear as our priority? It's a great question. How would people know that the Lord is a priority in our life? How do you know that the Lord is a priority? It's great just to have a discussion about that. And don't get angry with what you hear. <laughs> Listen. It could be the best thing is to hear this and say, well, you know, I think we need to brush up in, in this area and allow the Lord to begin to take some inventory, not only of how you're operating, but also your heart. Daily address our motives. Align our perspective with kingdom values. And when we do this, I think we'll be less prone to fall into this entrapment with what our flesh may desire. Sex is a good thing. Money is a good thing when used appropriately, right? So let's not have the idea that these things are evil in and of themselves. They're not. God has created sex. He's created a provision for us 
but we're to utilize that for his honor and glory. Let's go before the Lord in prayer.